1: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, three guests this week, two segments. First up, Mike Tarico, the host and play-by-play broadcaster for NBC Sports. Fresh off being the primetime host of the Olympic Games, we had a really good conversation about his Beijing Olympics experience, the environment for China for NBC Sports, um, his thoughts on Beijing being the least-watched Olympics ever, uh, his commentary on Camille Valley. Camila Valieva, as well as the IOC. Then we get into the NFL, the prospect of Al Michaels leaving for Amazon and taking over Sunday Night Football. Mike navigating wanting to do the NFL, but also knowing that Al Michaels is still in the booth. The the researchers who work for the Olympics and just what they do to provide people like Mike Tirico so much uh, invaluable material and data. And then we get into a little bit of sort of wish casting, and Mike says he... uh, his dream would be to call an NBA game with Charles Barkley, if that was possible. After Tirico, it is Austin Carp of the Sports Business Journal and John Lewis of Sports Media Watch. We have a roundtable on the Beijing Olympics viewership, which again, lowest in history. What to make of the Olympic brand going forward. NFL scheduling games on Christmas Day. Daytona 500 viewership and what that means for NASCAR's brand. A uh, quick thing on the PGA Tour and Phil Mickelson, and then we uh, finish with what kind of viewership the NCAA tournament might get. So Mike Tirico in the first segment, followed by Austin Carp and John Lewis, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, uh, the intro here will be shorter than I gave him at the top, but if you are a sports fan in the United States, you certainly know who Mike Tirico is, host and play-by-play broadcaster for NBC Sports. You just saw him as the host of uh, a primetime host of NBC's Beijing Olympics coverage obviously does the NFL horse racing golf Notre Dame football and um you know just hit up his bio uh in terms of obviously his ESPN career before his NBC career and I'm pleased to be joined by Mike Torrico on the sports media podcast Mike you are back in the United States i guess you've been back since uh, you know when, since the Super Bowl and uh uh, and I, uh, I hope you've gotten some sleep at
2: least. <laughs> I, I did. I, I, I didn't shave and I slept in, which was like two of the most exciting things I've done in quite some time. It's ni- nice to get a break, and uh, I, I'm disappointed that you, you cut you cut me down for my uh, familiarity in Canada. I, I'm a neighbor. I'm a neighbor to the south here, so I, I know I know you have Canadian listeners, but we we are we are close by. But it's, it's good. It's going to You're- be on with you.
1: You're a bridge away or a right. land, land, well, land crossing away. Yeah, exactly. All right, so exactly. I want to, I'm, I'm going to, this, this is an intentionally open ended question, then, and sure. I'll get to some more specifics okay. about it. Writ large, how would you describe your experience in Beijing? Just
2: the in Beijing part. Yeah.
1: Just not necessarily yeah, okay, the, sure. the, the, the mm-hmm. yeah, hosting the Olympics, but be hosting right, the Olympics right. within this country.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, so, Richard, we went over, I think I was the, on the ground there for. 14 or 15 days, you know, you lose a day when you travel from the U.S. to Asia, right? And then you gain it back when you land. So they're, they're essentially two weeks. And there for the first five primetime shows that we did Thursday, opening ceremony, Friday, and then Saturday, Sunday, Monday of week one. So we had a, about a nine or 10 day run up before that. To put it in one sentence, I would say that I feel like I went to the Olympics. I don't feel like I went to China. Uh, and it's because of the closed-loop system that they put in place. Uh, they were they were very stringent for zero COVID, and the procedures and protocols that we all had to live with mirrored that desire for the country. And for us, what did it mean? Uh, I could look outside my window and see uh, a restaurant, see... Uh, McDonald's actually uh, see a few things right below us across the street from the hotel and could not go there. So just to, I'll, I'll give you just a little bit of the example of going to work at the international broadcast center from our hotel, which may have been a mile and a half away. When you, when you went downstairs in the lobby, you went into this fenced in area, 12 foot high fences, green fences, and you got into your transportation, you drove the route, You got to the International Broadcast Center and you pulled into another series of green fences that closed behind you, chained behind that uh, with security all around. And you drove in and then you were able to move around inside the parking lot area and then into the International Broadcast Center. But that was it. Uh, We couldn't even drive to go see some of the familiar sites of Beijing. Uh, We we were very limited when we went to the other regions like Zhangjiakou, where they had a lot of the extreme sports. Again, it was a closed loop. We took a train there and an amazing, amazing train that got up to 200 miles an hour. It traversed over 100 miles in about 41 minutes. But when we got to the train station, it was a separate area. We got on separate cars of the train. Those of us who were in the closed loop bubble, media members for the most part. And the train station emptied out in a different different part of that train station where we got out there. And then once you got to that mountain area, that was a, a larger closed loop because of the size of it, but that was a closed loop as well. so the other folks who were coming there as fans could not come in through that entrance they went in a separate place. So that's a an anecdotal way of sharing that the experience was very different. It was not free in any way. Uh, you could not go around and ask people what it was like. you couldn't walk around and get a sense of the city. You've covered Olympics. the joy of it is the world's media together. Covering the athletes, but also, hey, let's go have a coffee in Beijing, or let, let's let's have lunch in a restaurant there, a local a local greasy spoon or something, just to get a feel for the games and how much they have become part of the country at that point and how they're consuming them, and that that opportunity just wasn't available.
1: Mike, you um you don't create the geopolitics that exist in the host city or country, but you are charged in some ways with at least explaining that to an American audience. Let me read something that your predecessor, Bob Costas, told the New York Times. He said, my friends and colleagues at NBC have been dealt the worst hand imaginable. The circumstances put an inevitable damper on the whole thing. The average person now fully understands the nature of the Chinese regime. It's not something that just news nerds are aware of. This is broadly understood. Um, when you're doing this, Mike, is, is, is the... Are the geopolitics of China, human rights abuses and everything else, is it sort of always, um, does it always sort of feel like it's surrounding you, even if you are not talking about that specifically at the time of a particular broadcast?
2: Good question, Richard. I, I would say that that answer was a little bit clouded because our movements were limited. So you couldn't really experience the things you'd like to find out in a curious way or a journalistically curious way. Uh, So so that was limited. I think when you're inside the broadcast center and you're watching Michaela Schifrin uh, get into the gate, you know, you're not thinking about, okay, what's the geopolitical ramifications of what's going on? Three thousand miles away from this country, from from where we are in other parts of this country at this moment. But I think you certainly day after day after day, it's in your thoughts, in your mind, is it impacting the game's? How do we cover it? I mean, when when you go to Minneapolis to do an NFL game, it's not as though your thoughts are uh, you know, when the Vikings are facing second and sixth of what's happened there in the last year or so with George Floyd. Right. It, it, it happens everywhere we go that there may be some overriding story that's there. It doesn't mean you lose sight of it, but I think to do your job, you're focused on the job of the moment. So that, that's why I bring up those parallels for that. It, it was a part of all of our thinking in all of our coverage. Uh, How do we cover this? How do we do it? With the balance of we're not a public affairs broadcast. We are there to cover the Olympics. You have to make choices at some point. So do you show the live Olympics or do you spend another 10 minutes on political affairs? And somebody might say, well, I think you should spend 10 more minutes on political affairs. Well, that person is not a snowboarding fan who's watching the biggest moment in that sport for four years at that point. So you're never going to satisfy everyone with the amount of coverage. I feel like we didn't just do it in the opening ceremony, check a box. We spent a lengthy time the night before, covered it as it happened during the opening ceremony, covered the moment of uh, one of member of the weaker population being one of the two to light the torch. And then as the games went on, whether it was Peng Shuai with Thomas Bach or other situations, we came back to it, we we had a lengthy discussion with one of our China analysts about uh, the impact of Eileen Gu and being an American raised and born in San Francisco athlete representing her country and the impact that has on, on both sides of the Pacific, and then brought them back Sunday to answer how China did and how the games were consumed. So I don't think we ignored it after just checking the box, quote unquote, at the start. And at the end of the day, I feel like it was something that was present in our coverage at the most appropriate times during the 17, 18 days. Now, for for somebody else, they may have a different opinion, but I, th- I think that's the way our group came away from our efforts in that regard.
1: Mike, near the end of the games, um, you had a pretty pointed take on Camila Camilla Valieva. And you said it's time for the IOC to step up, whether it's about blocking Russia from hosting events for a long, very long time, or stringent and globally transparent testing for Russian athletes going forward If swift action from the top of the Olympic movement does not happen quickly. The very future of the games could be in jeopardy. How does it work when you as the host, let's be honest, the face of NBC's coverage to the United States, how does it work if you as you as the host want to say something like that, or, or offer that kind of commentary?
2: Well, I'll, I'll take you a little bit behind the scenes of that. Uh, that happened on a Thursday morning live on USA network and, we get back from the primetime show wee hours of the night after we get off the air and deconstruct what we've done and think about what we're going to do. And, uh, and so after about three, three and a half hours of sleep, I got up to watch that live and watch it play out. And when I saw it, I was bothered by it. Um, so I, I do what I normally do if something like that bothers me and we are covering an event. I, I sat down and wrote, whether it was to get my ideas on paper, for uh, our leads and tags to those pieces, or um, in this case, hey, can I get a minute at the end of the show and and do this? And to the full credit of our our executive team, which starts with Pete Bavaco our chairman, but uh, Molly Solomon, uh, the president of our Olympic production, Rob Highland, our uh, Molly's the executive producer, of course, but Rob Highland is producing the show. Uh, they they were good with it. And certainly, I shared what I was going to say with with our leadership, but they were fully supportive of it. And I didn't just I didn't just pick pie out of the sky to say, "Hey, this is how I think it should be attacked." I happen to spend, you know, and this is one of the advantages we can discuss maybe later of having everyone in Connecticut or many of our folks in Connecticut. I spent some time talking to Angela Ruggiero, former U.S. gold medal hockey winner on the first U.S. women's hockey team that won. Angela has also served on the IOC Athletes Commission uh, and worked on the executive board of the IOC. And we had a conversation about this, this very topic. And, you know, what legitimately can they do this? And she said, yeah, they can. And that gave me the confidence that I'm not just going to throw something random against the wall as a, as a sports talk hot take to put a topic bar on and argue about. It's something that's legitimate and can happen. And those are legitimate things that the IOC and the national, the governing bodies of sports around the world can do if they really want to stop uh, this issue with Russia and testing and, and one, one te- doping, but two testing. So I feel like we, we can, we can do this and be on confident ground not to make headlines, but to make a point of what needs to be done and I think some of that responsibility belongs with the IOC. And I was um, encouraged to and endorsed by our bosses to say what, what I said.
1: Two more on the Olympics, Mike. Um, the Olympics, the Beijing Olympics were the least watched in history. As a broadcaster, you, you can't control viewership, but you've been in the business for a long time. Uh, having interviewed you before many times, I know you are sort of well aware of, of larger trends beyond where you are working. What's um? What's your reaction to hearing that, or what was your reaction to reading that? You
2: know, other than the unicorn that is the NFL, that's everything these days, right? Uh, so, so just kind of look at, what 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 do those what do those numbers mean, and what are the reasons behind them? I, I think there there are multiple reasons. Uh, I, I think three consecutive games in Asia was not a positive for the Olympic movement in the United States. I I think the back-to-back nature of Tokyo and Beijing didn't allow a buildup for the Olympic Games. There was a little bit of fatigue uh, on the the Olympics. And I think the China factor certainly factored into uh, the conversation. Not a lot of the conversation in the U.S. around China is positive. So I think all of those things build together. Plus, when you look at the winter sports, the U.S. men's hockey team, no NHL players for the second consecutive games. Uh, women's figure skating, usually a very big event for the US. We've gone four consecutive Olympic Games without seeing a US women's skater on the podium. So some of those big ticket items are not there. And then to your point, Richard, there's the overarching factor. Everything is different in terms of numbers and metrics and measuring the number of people who are watching. Uh, Certainly there is a trend. I think people who are smarter than me with data and information will continue to examine that. But I do think the Olympic movement needs a bit of a boost. I think the U.S. will get it with L.A. in 28. I think the drumbeat for that, uh, something positive like Paris uh, in 24, much like London, the London games were, I think could be a boost to the Olympic movement. Uh, so I, I think, and, you know, and some stars that develop on the U.S. side, if the NHL players are involved, all of a sudden you're going to get you know, the most watched hockey that you get all year. Uh, so I think all of those things could contribute to that. But, but I do think that it's an important time in the Olympic movement. Uh, the IOC has a global view, and they're thrilled with their successes in Asia. Um, you know, I, I do think, though, that they need to reinvest uh, in the product and the trust in the movement going forward. And I think that those steps can happen over the next over the next few years. And, and I will point out, and this is not defending the numbers at all, but it, it, everybody who watched the Olympics, I think one enjoyed the competition, for the most part, the coverage, the criticism of the actual coverage of what we've done and how we've done the last two Olympics has been somewhat limited. But I also know that more people show up to watch this than watch anything else that's on TV, except maybe for NFL games. Uh, So while it is down, and while it's not the same, uh, when you look at the streaming numbers, you look at everything else, people still come to the Olympics much more than they come to most other things that are on broadcast network TV on a night-in-night-out basis and for 18 straight nights. It's not just the one night of a good event. So I think I think there is room to, room to rehab the Olympics a bit. I'd like to see the IOC take some of the lead on that. Uh, but I do think the Olympic movement still has some good ground to cover going forward.
1: I appreciate you answer that, Mike. One, follow, one last follow-up on this is, uh, as an on-air talent, uh, do you want to know the viewership the night before. You obviously everybody you have uh, you have a, a PR staff. You have obviously executives who are going to be paying attention to the viewership numbers because this is what the business is based on. But you as an on air talent, do you want to know how many people are watching the night before, or do you want to not have? that in your floating in your
2: head as you have all these other responsibilities right uh, f- first off I'll, I'll just start with this I hate the word talent when it describes us yeah I, fair I, enough I think I think, it, I, think it, I think it's so and you know it's just used as a, as a generic term I just have always said this and I, it's just, I, blame, I just blame the blame the agents Mike, I think, wh- wh- which, which, which I will and it's all good but um, Jack Felling who uh, helps put together who coordinates all of our producers and uh, Marissa Boyajian and Ellie Wright uh, the people who work on those features that are such great storytellers of an individual's life, or Mike Sheehan, our amazing director, um, those people are talented. I mean, th- we have thousands of talented people who work on our shows all the time, and when we get called talent, it just it just makes my skin curl because those are the, those people are just as talented we just happen to be the ones facing the camera so i think for somebody like me that thanks for the soapbox for 30 seconds um no, no, i appreciate um, that
1: uh, i think i i hate the word critic when people say critic to me instead of writer so i kind of get yeah, I get what yeah, you're talking it,
2: about. and it's just it's just a personal pet peeve um you know what i i think you want to know i don't want to know the specifics like wait well so where did this audience move here or there I want to know because I want to understand, are we doing anything different in reaction to, and for the most cases, the Olympics that I've been a part of, especially the last two, we haven't. Um, You you just want to understand when are viewers watching? Why are we doing this? Why are we promoting a certain thing at a certain time? Uh, What what are the important windows? Uh, You know, we we knew, we knew that it was uh, going to be a big audience connecting from the Super Bowl to the Monobob. uh, And most of that audience didn't know what the Monobob was. So it was really important for, uh, Molly, Solomon, and Rob Highland to make sure that we were keenly aware, we all work together. Hey, we're gonna make sure that we take 30 seconds to tell the story of Kaylee Humphreys, Alana Myers, Taylor, and this sport right before we get there, because most of the audience will have not seen it. Because you're gonna get some people who were not watching Bobsled earlier in the Olympics. So I think for that purpose, understanding how and when you have the opportunity to maintain an audience and carry them from one sport to the next. That's where those things matter to me. The The numbers, that, that's up to our bosses. And I will say our bosses were unbelievable in uh, allowing us to do what we were doing and to do our jobs and uh, not be impacted by the articles of this rating or that rating. Um, the The energy and the attitude in our group was off the charts good. And it wasn't just in uh, Stanford and where NBC's headquarters are in Connecticut. It was in LA with our Super Bowl slash Olympic group. And it was in Beijing as well. And that, that's what got me through, you know, the 18 nights and 15, 16,000 miles, whatever the travel was, uh, the attitude of our team, they, they lifted you up all the time. And if the rating story was one thing outside of our building for the people working on the Olympics, you, you never saw anybody down because of that. The energy was through the roof and That that's their professionalism, and it's led by Molly. I've mentioned Molly a few times. Uh, She is as terrific an executive and a leader and a group dynamic person that I've I've been around, and she really made this experience for all of us uh, super energizing uh, from the inside as we produced it.
1: You know, it's interesting, Mike. You mentioned sort of the inability to get a sense of the city that you were in, and obviously, having covered seven Olympics, as far and away, the best part of the Olympics is to just sort of be part of the the community of the world outside in Athens or in Turin. It will be it will be such a dramatic change for you in 2024 when you are in Paris, obviously one of the world's great, most beautiful cities in the world, being able to take part in in the Olympics, I'd imagine the people there will be overjoyed at having the Olympics, knock on wood, we're post pandemic. I'm not sure a host will ever have to deal with those kind of two different variables than you will between 2022
2: and 2024. It'll be drastically different to say the least, even Tokyo, you know, uh, Tokyo, after we were in the, that bubble or loop for 15 days, we were then allowed to go out and explore the city. And I didn't, I just, I just stayed, stayed with the rules from, from the start there. Uh, I I do miss that a lot Uh, in, uh, in Pyeongchang. I got to go to several events uh, at nighttime because we were on the daytime. And I love that. And I did get to go to a few events here uh, because I went from closed loop to closed loop. I saw curling in person uh, on, on one, one evening and uh, got, got a chance to go to another event along the way. But yeah, you're right about Paris. Richard, we had a chance when I was, actually my last event at ESPN in the summer of 2016, late spring, early summer, got to cover the European soccer championships, the Euros in, in Paris. And that was awesome is such a great city in so many ways. And the plans of the Paris 2024 organizing committee to use so many of the familiar places and locations and landmarks of Paris as backdrop for venues, uh, this has the promise of being really that jolt, I think, that the Olympic movement needs domestically for us and globally as well. So if if you can organize your schedule to make that it's 886 days away. So if you want to start planning, I would, I would start working, working your folks at the athletic to get you there.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, they the, the line for that one is long and I am well behind. I've my, uh, I believe my time is over. All right. So I want to switch to the NFL and then I will, uh, let you go. You, Mike, you're going to have to put your, uh, United nations cap on for this one, get your diplomatic, uh, diplomacy degree, uh, cause you'll need it for this answer. So I respect, um, that you have to be pragmatic and circumspect on this area of questioning, but Al Michaels has said repeatedly, including to me, that he's about to analyze what's next for him as his NBC contract has now expired after the Super Bowl. There's a very good prospect. Al will be calling Amazon games next year. If, so let me ask you just a couple of questions about this directly. If Al leaves, has NBC told you that you'll be calling Sunday Night Football?
2: Well, I haven't been told anything yet, but I'm, look, I've done a decade of primetime NFL. I've done 200 NFL games. It was part of the reason I came to NBC. So I would hope so at this point. Right. But we, we haven't had that absolute 100%. This is, this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen on this day. I I would hope so at this point, if, if that's the case, I I will say this, which has been uh, I I guess one of the neater parts of this entire back and forth over the last uh, few months with Al Al and I are friends. We, we, we get along. When I got back from Beijing, I spoke to Al for about 20 minutes the week of the Super Bowl because the way the Super Bowl was going to work, you know, our sets are all over the place. Uh, I didn't get to L.A. until Friday morning. So there was a good chance I wasn't going to see Al in person. So I just wanted to at least touch base. And we, we ended up talking about the Olympics. We talked about China. We talked about golf. You know, I, I the one of the best parts of these last six years has been getting to know Al and become even more friendly with him. And, uh, it's, it's been, it's been a great part for me. Um, if I am the person that follows Al, um, that would be, a, a lifetime opportunity for me and would be a thrill, but I'm going to wait to let this all sort out. And I'm sure that announcement will come from somebody at some point who's in a higher bit of authority than I am, but, of course, of course, it's something I would be excited to be a part of, and I enjoyed doing five games each of the last two years with Chris. That's been it's been a great experience for me as well.
1: I want to I want to follow up on this, and it's not about Al; it's about you. But you came to NBC having been the voice of Monday Night Football, so you, so for for many many years you had you know, one of the three or four principal number one NFL jobs when it comes to, to, to play by play. You have then since in that time that you've been to NBC, while you have called some NFL games, you haven't had the full schedule. So I wonder how have you just sort of navigated within your own, you know, framework within your own life, wanting to call the NFL regularly. But as you said, having a colleague who's widely regarded as the best person to
2: ever do the job. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, understanding of it you know there there are there are going to be turns and roads and you've you've got to take them and maximize them right uh so i was able to get involved with the notre dame property to keep doing play-by-play of uh, football because i do think that's uh that's a muscle that if not exercised weakens and uh you know, to become just a studio host and then hop back to do play-by-play of course you can do it but you're not going to be as good so uh the last two years with five nfl games and six or seven notre dame games i've done 11 or 12 games and even in the years before that it was an odd game or two with kurt warner and peter schrager on nfl network which was a blast and the, the three of us stay in touch and mark titleman who produced those games we stay in touch with a group chat uh and and connect uh, on a regular basis when kurt's movie comes out or schrager does something silly on good morning football right so uh so it's allowed other opportunities it, the main one for me, though, Richard, football-wise, has been hosting Football Night in America. And, you know, I've done both in my career. I've been a studio host. I've been a play-by-play guy uh, at at a really fortunate opportun- opportunity uh, for me at, at very high-level events. And I think each one makes you better. Um, I, I have a real understanding of what Dan Hicks or Terry Gannon were going to be Doing in alpine or in figure skating at these Olympics because of my time as a play by play guy. And as the studio host, I feel like I can augment. Well, okay, I, hey, uh, with our, our research team, Brandon Glass and Rachel Thompson, who have been the researchers the last couple Olympics on the primetime show. Hey, Rachel, hey, hey, Brandon, can, can we have two facts ready? So if Terry says this, I'll say this just to kind of make sure we finish the thought or Hey, if Dan says that, you know, this is this is the result of the event, yet there are 10 more skiers to come down the hill later on. I can just mention we'll have the final results later on. Having lived through all these play by play experiences and now living in the studio, I feel like it's made me a more complete broadcaster. And I think it will make me better. So I took these five or six years of not doing a week to week game to get better. I I thought, Richard, when I left ESPN, I was I guess 49 or 50 uh, and had just finished my 10th year of Monday night football. I thought at that point I was at the best of my play-by-play abilities because I had done it for a long time. I got comfortable with the league, really understood everything about it. And to go away from it for a while, you're you're wondering, okay, how do I keep sharp? And I think in these five or six intervening years, I've done that by all the things I just talked about. So hopefully uh, if this opportunity comes and, and I get to work in the booth, I'll be jumping in to the deep end and and ready to go. And and I I felt that way this year when I did uh, the five games, most of them, I think all of them actually with Chris, except for the playoff game, uh, the wildcard game with the Bengals and the Raiders. I felt like I jumped in and I was right back where I had been. You you didn't hear a lot of, boy, this this is really a drop down in quality or it's um, two guys who don't get along. So uh, I'm hopeful that, I've gotten better at my job, and then I can take that to this next chapter, if that's the next chapter or whatever it might be. So that's the goal, and that's the hope.
1: Mike, uh, I remember growing up uh, reading a story in Sports Illustrated about the greatest job in television, and it was the Olympic researcher job. For back then, it was ABC, and then obviously went to NBC when Ebersol and the that your crew uh, took over. Did, does that job still exist? Is there still a twenty-something person who travels around the world interviewing? Um, foreign athletes for research for the games
2: there is a team there is a team and i know you you enjoy um telling the stories of the people who are not on camera and how impactful they can be uh in in sports broadcasting in general and our research team is through the roof uh a, a guy by the name i got by the name of ron fakar i should i had this uh this great adventure of going from Beijing to Connecticut for two nights, to our headquarters, to L.A. for the Super Bowl, then back to Beijing. And Ron Ficaro, who leads all of our research efforts at NBC for every sport. Ron was Ron was with me every, every mile of that trip and is like the greatest travel companion in the world because he's one of the smartest people. He has encyclopedic knowledge on everything. So Ron is one of those people. Uh, Um, among those people who are like that uh, a gentleman by the name of john cartuccio leads our research group you walk down into the room where we usually all assemble to watch the eight games at the time in the early window on sunday in the nfl that room for the last two and a half weeks was the research room and there are a dozen people sitting at desks and somebody's the biathlon person somebody is the curling person and if you have this quest arcane question They are they are digging up the answers. But on our set for the primetime show, I mentioned Brandon Glass and Rachel Thompson. Both are young. Both are super smart, supremely talented, and they they get all the answers for So I'll I'll give you a great anecdote on there. At least I think it's great. You can determine if it is or not. We're we're doing um, Sway and Han are the figure skating pairs from China, pairs team from China. The pairs was put last in the program. And as you know, the host nation has some sway and influence in the scheduling. Well, China wanted pairs to be last. You've covered a bunch of Olympics, Richard. You know that pairs usually isn't the last event. So we wanted to get that out, get that out there. And so I asked Rachel, I said, hey, Rachel, can you, can you look and see what the last time pairs was the final event in figure skating? And in minutes, she dug up the answer of 1954. And so uh, we were able to go back. I think it was 54. I forget now with all the details we've had in my head the last few weeks. So we were able to go back and dig that up and get that on the air. And so we were able to frame that. It has been almost 70 years, for the last time that figure skating. Had pairs as the finale, which was the point of Sway and Han winning the gold. And it couldn't be fifty-four because it would have been fifty-two or fifty-six uh, if you just take Olympic cycles. Because sixty was uh, it was in California near Lake Tahoe. So it's fifty-six or fifty-two. You can tell that I've turned the brain off after uh, after the Olympics. But that's what that's what that group that's what that group does still does at an extraordinary level, and they're the people who will be broadcast uh, division executives and leaders, if they so choose to, down the road, because uh, the job of Olympic researcher takes them in non-pandemic times around the world to help dig up the background on the story of, uh, here's this here's this skier, here. what, what can you tell me about um, uh, th- this biathlete who's won five medals, right? Okay, well, we've got a, a full-page bio on that person. That may never get used by the studio. It may only get used by biathlon announcers. But they do it. The Olympic research is still done at that level, that template that was set with uh, Rune Arledge and the Olympics of ABC in the early 70s and then magnified and elevated with Dick Ebersole's time at NBC. And that has continued. And so when Quinton Fillon-Malier from France won five medals in biathlon, somewhere in my thousand pages of stuff, here's the Filion malier bio, and you can read about him, and then you can take the one fact and use it to tag the uh the show showing of his winning a fourth or fifth medal all
1: right final two mike again if if we sort of project in the future and you do end up calling sunday night football is it sort of logical to suggest then that the something that would have to give would be notre dame football because you can't be in two locations at once on the same weekend
2: i haven't gotten that far you you would imagine you would imagine so but you know i mean you know as Johnson did uh, Saturday, Sunday this week a few times. Joe Buck's done That's some, true. Yeah. Joe, Joe's done World Series and Thursday night football, you know, for seven straight nights. So any anything is possible. I will let I'll let our folks decide of how they want to how they want to maneuver me. I, I will say that I wasn't expecting the Notre Dame experience to be as great as it was. And it has been, because it, it's it's taken me, you know, to South Bend maybe 30 times in the last 35 times, the last five or six years. And Uh, You remind, I've I've never really called a team, you know, I've only done national games. So you pop in one week, you pop out one week, right? right. I think we all do. Uh, But to, to go see a team and then you're watching every game. I've watched these players from when they were recruited all the way until a fifth year, senior year. And they become star players, like a kid named Avery Davis. I remember when he was recruited by Notre Dame and I watched him become a key player as a senior and a captain. And, that's so valuable to be able to tell stories that way. So I've really enjoyed that experience, and I'll let I'll let uh, our bosses Sam Flood and everybody else decide how I get uh, how I get deployed. But uh, you know, obviously, when you when you're on the NFL, that becomes your primary focus because of the impact of it. So if that's the case, I'm sure something will change.
1: Yeah, promotional opportunity, Mike. The to Torico Cruiser, <laughs> get a you know a gigantic uh, van like Madden did, and you can drive from college to the pro stadium. Uh- Good, uh, good marketing opportunity all right here's the last one um, and I think you'd be interested you're an, I should I should say I think you would be an interesting person to answer this because um, you might uh, be attractive to another network one, one of the things that has always interested me is for a long time in broadcasting Mike there was this notion that you would never let your existing on-air people, call a game on another network it was very competitive people had contracts but over the last couple years we have seen some sharing interestingly enough if the um you know if obviously for one thing if someone's in a partnership like cbs and turner are for the ncaa tournament you know you'll see turner broadcasters on cbs and vice versa i always thought that there would be value in broadcasters doing one-offs on their quote unquote <laughs> competitors' networks. Right. It's it's a great promotional opportunity for everybody. And so like to you know again, I know this is not going to happen, but like it would be just cool to me like if Mike Tirico could do a game with Tony Romo or Jim Nance could do like Sunday night football. What I just, yeah, as a, just a general concept, like, what do you think of that? And do you have any thoughts as to why in 2022 we sort of haven't seen that and people are still very I guess protective of not having one on-air person on another network, even if that on-air person on another network ultimately is free promotion for your company.
2: Right? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think because when you hear Joe Buck, you think of Fox. Right. When True. when when you when you when you hear Jim say "Hello, friends," you know you you know you're watching CBS, and that. There's competitive business here, uh, you know, in the sales world, in the ratings world, all, all, all of that. So for executives, this is our intellectual property. You know, why why share your IP, right, uh, w- with with others? Which is a global conversation. So yeah, I, I, I see I see your point. Um, of, of trying to think. I, I can't think of uh, of one of the shows, but when I see during the NCAA tournament, like you said, the sharing of people, you'll end up with. The, Jim doing a game on True TV, right? And you right. know, and and then and then <laughs> exactly. re- reading a promo for a True TV show, right? Which actually, no, Dan Pelt, Dan Pelt has long been uh, long been one yeah. of my great buddies. I was or the
1: that- Manning the Manning cast was a perfect example of this, where where other you know not com- yeah. uh, t- people on air people from other companies floated onto ESPN. To, right. to talk to Peyton and Eli.
2: But that wasn't the main broadcast. You know, that was like, hey, here's Al Michaels from Sunday Night Football. Here's Joe Buck from Fox. You know, it it, it was it was really a guest spot more than uh, coming on the air. And then here I am here. I would be showing up at CBS promoting 60 minutes after the game. Right. It, it, <laughs> right. it just it just feels weird. So I think it's it's more the comfort of the connectivity of the networks. If, if I could do one, I would love to do an NBA game on Turner with Barkley. I, yeah. I, every time look like everybody else, every time I've been around Chuck, it's the best we're doing. I'm doing the NBA finals with ABC and ESPN. We're in Cleveland. Uh, it was the San Antonio Cleveland series. I'm not sure. And it was a Saturday before Sunday game. We used to have Thursday, then Sunday uh, with a, a travel window in between. So it's Saturday and we're in Cleveland. And somebody told me that there's a place not too far from what was then Jacobs field. Uh, that serves the best bison burger. The bison burger is better than a hamburger. It's the best thing you'll ever have. So all right, Saturday afternoon in Cleveland, I'm walking over. I walk over, Chuck's in the place. Sit there by himself. Chuck bought bison burgers or whatever it was for the whole restaurant. Maybe 20 people said, but Charles just quietly no just bought for everybody. And we happen to we stay in the same hotel, walk back to the hotel. People are going down their windows and all that. Charles has such a gregarious nature. He's so awesome on the air, as we all know. Uh, I've loved every second. But One of my favorite nights of uh, my sportscasting career was just fronting beginning and end of a Stanley Cup playoff final game. And at the end of the night, we're back at the hotel and it's me and Doc Emmerich and Charles Barkley. And it's just like what? What are the three of you doing here together, right? Yeah, but that's the that's is, Every time I've been around Charles, I love him. I love his personality. I love his take, and I'd love to hear him do a game like that. Uh, and I, the, the couple of times he has has been fun. So if you ask me if I could do a one off somewhere with someone, um, I, I'd I'd love to do I'd love to do a game with Chuck somewhere. That would, that would be a blast. I like your idea though. It, 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 your idea would be fun for all of us because we 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 uh, the thing that I think that is really cool about our industry now is uh, a lot of us are friends and stay in touch, you know, whether it's Joe or Jim, Ian is different because Ian Eagle and I have been, you know, Ian interned for me in Syracuse and local TV. We've been buddies for 30 years and know each other's families, you know, and his son Noah and all that and his success. So, but a lot of us who do this, Kevin Harley, I got a text from Kevin Harlan right before the Olympics got started. Um, so a lot of us are all friends. So uh, I, I, and colleagues and acquaintances. So I think we'd, uh, We'd all secretly enjoy a chance to go go you know, do the VRBO of broadcasting and spend a night in somebody else's place and do a game.
1: Yeah, I was. Uh, I had uh, Ian Eagle and Mike Breen on this podcast together. They uh, and it was great. It was you know it, it was uh, they're obviously very very close. Uh, friends and have been so for a long time, but just to hear their by play and interaction, you never get that. And it was great. And it sort of made me think uh, how interesting and cool it would be if, uh, if those two got to do a, uh, do an assignment together. All right. Mike Tirico obviously is the host of the NBC's uh, Olympics coverage. He's also a play-by-play broadcaster for NBC sports. You hear him on the NFL as well as Notre Dame football. He'll have uh, horse racing coming up the Kentucky Derby, not too far away from here uh, golf as well. Listen, Mike, good of you to take some time, um, in your, uh, in your post uh, Olympic experience to pop on with me today on the sports media podcast. And, uh, and I imagine our paths will, uh, will cross along the way again. Thanks so much.
2: Hope so. Look forward to it, Richard. Uh, So long from Ann Arbor and we'll, we'll just, uh, we'll just fist bump, not handshake here in Ann Arbor. How about that?
1: All right, The you. It, by the way, it's going to be you, Barkley, and Vital. Make that oh, right. oh,
2: Vital too. Okay, that, done deal. Yeah. Thank you. Because
1: Vital, Vital has always said his dream before he's done is to call a game with Barkley. Barkley. So, but you do need a play-by-play person.
2: I, I got close. I got close. I did Barkley or uh, excuse me, Vital and Magic Johnson on a Michigan State basketball Ooh. game. I have three of them at the table. So. We have been close, so if we sub Charles, that would be that would be a good sub. How
1: about uh Tarico Vital and Bill Walton? That
2: would that, that would be my uh, experience. Look, I've I've survived Walton. We've turned him to passion and this is Dave's Dave's cross to bear at the moment. So I know.
1: It's basically it's uh, it's yeah. It's it's been handed off to Syracuse people, left <laughs> that, and right, basically. That,
2: that's exactly right. Thanks for having me on, Richard. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Mike. Take, be well.
2: Okay, take care.
1: All right, here is our next segment, one I'm very excited about. Austin Carp has been on this podcast many times. He is a managing editor slash digital of Sports Business Daily. Many times I call him the assistant managing editor, which is a horrible job. I mean, the guy was promoted like years ago. So he is indeed managing editor slash digital of the excellent Sports Business Daily. Invaluable, I would say. And John Lewis, founder and editor of the Sports Media Watch. Once again, another invaluable website. He's also part of the Sports Media Watch podcast with T.J. Reeves. T.J. is the host there. Uh, good guy. And John Lewis, of course, is the uh, is the star of that show as the uh, editor and founder of Sports Media Watch. Guys, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I've given you better intros in the past, so I apologize for that, but, but it's early in the morning for me.
0: It's the longest intro I've ever had. I'm happy.
1: John, are you okay? Very happy with that intro?
3: No, I'm doing quite well. Uh, I've been up for nearly a half hour, so hopefully I've got the energy today.
1: (laughs) All right. So here we're going to get a lot of different topics. I mean, this is, uh, you know, nobody loves topics more than Robert Seidman of the sports uh, television ratings fame. So here we go. Let's start off with the Olympics. And I'm going to start with you, John Lewis. I saw that you um, in your recap as NBC We're taping this the day after NBC put its release out. And the sort of the short story is this. Beijing is the least watched Olympics ever in prime time. Um, and it was really down compared to the previous low, which was Tokyo. If it's off the top of my head, I think 11.4 million total audience delivery in prime time. That means five straight Olympics, John Lewis. Sochi, Rio, Pyeongchang, Tokyo, Beijing. They've all decreased. That is not the direction... You want to go. So here's the st- like, we'll just sort of open it up very big picture. What's your takeaway from these Olympics vis a vis the viewership of these Olympics?
3: Well, I think what you have going on is a property that is in long term decline. And the past two years, because of all of the unusual circumstances, have kind of taken it even lower than the overarching trend. But I think you know you can't just say it's covid you can't just say it's china uh, and you can't even just say it's kind of this the overarching culture wars where you know you don't have the unity that you had maybe a decade ago in terms of a mass audience watching and you you know maybe you can credit it to the uh, shift in television certainly where people are not watching linear nearly as much as they used to but you know there's a there's a broader trend here that is not specific to any one olympics and while I do expect NBC to have a good shot at an increase in Paris and an increase in Milan and certainly in Los Angeles, I think there's a broader long-term trend where by the time you get to 2030, depending on where that is, uh, and certainly once you get to Brisbane in, in 2032, you know, I mean, I'm not thinking that NBC is not going to want to renew, but certainly it's not, the Olympics will not be the same kind of hot property by the time you get to that end of this deal that it was at the start. And I think that's because ultimately it's kind of a passe product kind of for this time. Uh, You know, this is not the same kind of event it was in London and certainly not in 96 or 2002, where, you know, the whole country kind of stopped to watch this, you know, uh, this two-week marathon and got heavily invested in it. And there was a lot of rah-rah national pride kind of that you just don't really have today right now in terms of certainly the unity. Uh, and uh, so I, I think ultimately, while NBC can expect the numbers to bounce back a little bit, the overarching trend, I think, is a big problem. and And that's not going away.
1: That's interesting. So Austin, uh, my sense, I don't agree with John Lewis there. I think he makes a great point. Everything he said is factually correct. And I know we talked about this in the piece, uh, that, that you were part of, uh, which I appreciate you and Chad Finn for the athletic, because to me, the headwinds that really killed these Olympics, um, human rights abuses in the politics of China, global pandemic, lack of household names heading into Beijing. Uh, sports culture preoccupied with the NFL, Asia-based games with a terrible uh, time windows, Olympic fatigue from Tokyo, lack of spectators, and then the IOC just aiding propaganda in China. Most of this is just my take; it doesn't mean I'm right. Almost all of those, Austin, everything I just named, essentially disappears for Paris. Knock on wood, the pandemic is past us. So my thought is that I think Paris will rebound and rebound huge because I I think that NBC selling the soap that the Olympics brings us together for Tokyo and Beijing I think that was just pure spin that was kind of BS and it didn't work I kind of buy that maybe in 2024 people want an Olympic games people want to rally around that so do you do you side more with John Lewis or do you side more with me on this
0: Well I got I kind of want to parse it out a little bit um, I agree with you that there was really very little going for these games for NBC. The, the amount of headwinds that they had were, uh, you know, kind of unprecedented in, in terms of timing and, you know, geopolitical issues. So yeah, they have that. And I think they will see an uptick in Paris and they'll see an uptick for the next winter games in Italy. But I do kind of agree with John that I, there is some sort of systemic issue going on with the popularity of the Olympics, I think within the U S audience and i i don't think something that's not i don't something that's not going to go away in my mind is this just level of disgust with the ioc and the corruption that goes on there and it's like you know you you watch these games and you see what happens like with the figure skating this year and it's like it's like ugh, like is this is this what i want to watch is this what i want to spend my time on when it it's just such blatant corruption out there on the international stage and you do want to cheer for these athletes and, and, you know, they're killing themselves out there. They're, they're working for four years to get there. And, you know, it's stuff like this that just makes you not appreciate just the system that is set up for these athletes. But, you know, will there be a, you know, what is the long, longer term prognosis for the Olympics and meteorites? Like, I I don't know how much interest NBCU Comcast in particular is going to have in an uptick in rights fees when this comes up. I know it's not coming up for a while, but uh, you know, they're gonna have to have a real halo effect coming off of Los Angeles.
1: It's interesting, John Lewis, that um you know once upon a time in the skipper era, uh, I think ESPN, I mean, they bid on the Olympics, so they clearly wanted it. But under his leadership, the Olympics were a property that I think ESPN really would have gone hard for if they ever um, went up for open bid. in the Petaro Uh, you know, Bob Chapek era, and maybe those guys aren't even around when this comes up. I'm not sure, but that would be interesting to me. You know, if you sort of project it out, let's say Austin's right, and maybe NBCU just doesn't want to be in the Olympics business anymore. Who, who would be the next logical group to to take that on? And it strikes me that at least in terms of the legacy companies, ESPN would be the one that 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 you know, not not counting the Amazon or Netflix or something like that. It strikes me that it would work for ESPN, given it's a 24-7 network. Yeah,
3: well, you know, don't forget that Fox was really interested for a while. Uh, And, you know, I I suspect that Fox, which has had less turnover at that executive level since those talks than ESPN has, might actually be, if NBC were uninterested, uh, you know, the the potential place to look. I mean, honestly, I'm not sure that there's going to be a ton of interest outside of NBC. Right. Uh, so to me, I, I feel like if, if any other outlet was to bid, I would say maybe Fox more than ESPN. Uh, but I think it would probably have to be, if it wasn't NBC, you know, I would think that by 2032, Amazon's a big enough player. Maybe they try. I mean, I know, you know, you kind of excluded them from, from this particular. Uh,
1: yeah, I should have mentioned them.
3: No, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, I think that might be the place to look because as a linear TV property, I'm not sure that the Olympics is going to be overwhelmingly valuable for anybody going forward. I think for NBC, by the end of this deal, Peacock is going to be second only to the NBC prime time window as the primary place where you see the Olympic games. Uh, And that points in my, in my view to an Amazon being the big contender.
1: All right. Interesting. Good. Uh, Good thoughts from both you guys. All right, next topic. Austin, I'm going to start with you because uh, I cited you in my last piece on The Athletic on these numbers. And just correct me if I'm wrong because I'm doing this off the top of my head. But the NBA viewership numbers for the regular season at this point are up over 2020 and flat basically with 2019. Turner is up pretty good this year over 2020 and 2019. And if i remembering this right ESPN is either flat or a little bit down but but the the overall thing here is that they're up from 2020 at this point um flat with 2019 which I feel like is a win and so maybe the NBA sort of viewership numbers have stabilized a little bit what what's your read as we headed into the all-star break with the numbers breakdown that
0: you had yeah uh, just real quick to I, I know we're on NBA now but just a real quick dimension yeah, yeah, the go ahead Olympic one other name I want to keep an eye on going forward is what David Zaslaw potentially does with Discovery yeah, Combined point. with Turner. Yeah, there. They, they have yeah, Eurosport. They have the Olympics. They can scale that. They're a potential player down the road. Yeah, I agree. Although it, it will be
1: uh, in the post-Zucker world, it'll be interesting to see how aggressive mm-hmm. they are in sports and I think they'll even be more aggressive quite frankly. So yeah. great You great,
0: know on low sports, you know they're big on they have all the Olympics throughout Europe, yep. so they yep. have that yep. sort of international yep. scale. But yep. yeah, yep. NBA. Go ahead. Yep. Looking domestically on NBA. Yeah, I mean, being up from last season it's not that hard. I think if you showed the three of us playing 3 on 3 basketball, you could probably see an increase over last season, <laughs> but it's getting back to two seasons ago. Okay, they're kind of where where they were but, you know, I'm sure if we had this sort of discussion two seasons ago, we'd be like, and a lot of people did have that sort of discussion. All right, the NBA is really down from those golden, go, no, no pun intended, golden, golden state years. Um, so where where is it? Where is it going to end up? The resurgence of the Warriors has obviously helped. You're still relying on LeBron a little bit. But there's, you know, you're still kind of lacking some marquee matchups out there. Uh, you can't get Zion Williamson out on the court. Everybody wants to watch him. It'd be nice if he, you know, ever played again. Yep. Uh, they they flexed out of a few Pelicans games like that. We talked about at the end of the season last year. Wow, if the Knicks can really keep this up next season, they could be a really good team. <laughs> so draw. much for that. So much for that. Uh, the Knicks became the Knicks again. And, you know, if you're not going to have that, then I'm curious to see if they can see a bounce during the second half of the season. Uh, It does help that, you know, you're kind of clearing out the sports calendar now. NFL calendar ran a little longer than it has in previous years with that extra week. Uh, Once we get past March Madness, you know, let's see what kind of race we have toward the end of the season. I do like this end of uh, this playing tournament that they have. It gives you – yeah, it gives LeBron a chance. Like, if if they can't, you know – if they're still in ninth, yeah, they have a chance. And LeBron's not out of it. The Lakers aren't out of it. And, you know, that could potentially be a TV draw.
1: Yeah, well, John Lewis, remember last year, the playing games were amazing. You're never going to get that again just because of uh, the what you had there. I think it was Lakers-Warriors, if I remember right. Um, but it, I, I'm with – I mean, at this point, you know, if you're in the NBA, just make the Warriors your national team on every single national window. That'll be your chance to raise the viewership. But what do you th- – in all seriousness, what do you think uh, – as we head forward in the second half of the of the year, um, for both the regular season and then obviously, if you're the NBA, you are you are absolutely rooting for a team like the Warriors to get to the finals because that's your. I think in a non-LeBron universe, that's your best bet to get viewership.
3: Yep, yeah, well, you know, look, so already this season of the first of the top 39 games, the 39 most watched games, 31 involved Golden State or the Lakers, right? So this is a league that is extremely dependent primarily on Golden State, secondarily on the Lakers. Uh, one wonderful thing for the league, it won't happen because the Lakers are just too terrible this year. But if the Lakers could get that seven seed and set up yeah. a matchup with Golden State, then i mean that would be amazing in that first round yep, momentum uh, viewing yep yeah but you know it's it's you know the lakers are more than likely not even going to get to that, that 7 mark because of how poorly they've played all the injuries all season but certainly you know you want the warriors there the chris paul injury is not something you want to see in terms of just as a basketball fan, but the reality is if that makes Golden State more likely to get to the finals, I don't think the league is going to be overwhelmingly upset because Phoenix is probably better than Golden State fully healthy. So if you can get the Warriors in there, Maybe the Warriors against. I mean, the Nets seem pretty unlikely. I know that they'll get everyone back healthy by the end of the year, but it's hard to make the finals as a seven or eight seed. Uh, but if you get Warriors Sixers, that would be a big matchup. If you were to get Warriors Bulls somehow, I mean, you could really get you know uh, some 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 interesting uh, numbers for that if the Bulls can make a long run. So there's there's high potential for this NBA playoffs, but realistically, you know, is the league back where it was? Well, no. And, you know, I think ultimately there was a bit of a, I've referred to it as a jump the shark moment when LeBron went to LA. Uh, I think LeBron in Cleveland was a great storyline for the league. LeBron in LA has never interested people quite as much. And certainly three out of four seasons being a a mediocre team on the outskirts of the playoff race uh, is certainly not helpful as well. Uh and so you know, LeBron going to going to LA, uh, Durant even going to Brooklyn, I think those were a step too far for a lot of viewers in terms of the NBA's strength as its storylines. And those were two storylines that, you know, uh ultimately were just not not in keeping with what the league had been doing before, which are these kind of organic seeming stories. Even when LeBron went to Miami, even when Durant went to Golden State, those were such audacious moves that they seemed more organic and less forced than just going to you know random big market team X, right? So I, I think the league is going to have a tough time getting back to twenty eighteen. 2019 isn't going to be so hard to get back to. That wasn't something kind a great year for the league. 2018, I, it's, it's probably going to end up looking a bit like 1998 going forward uh, in terms of, you know, that's just not an era you're going to get back to.
1: Yeah, the, it's interesting because I would have absolutely guessed that LeBron going to the Lakers would have been Bafo. Viewership for the league. You're correct. That has not happened. I also thought the Clippers Lakers rival race with Kawhi, Paul George, LeBron, Anthony Davis there was going to be must-see viewing. Obviously, injuries have um, have changed that. And you make a great point about Miami. You know, ultimately, LeBron's move to Miami created a villain in the league, and polarization polarized teams are great for viewership. So Miami essentially was a villain almost every time they played during the Bosch Wade era. And so, yeah, you're right. You don't have. You know the 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 move the Durant move and the Laram move did not turn out viewership wise like I would have expected. All right, let's Austin. Let's move on to your colleague John Oran, who had a very interesting column uh, with sort of some NFL scheduling predictions. The one that really stood out to me was the NFL on Christmas Day, and how um, you know how the the viewership success of this year's Christmas Day game, uh, which I think was Browns Packers on. Um, Fox. I believe I'm right about that. Um, but it's um, it's just interesting in that that was obviously once upon a time the NBA owned Christmas Day. And the NFL now very clearly uh, is staking its ground on Christmas becoming a a permanent fixture in the schedule. And if that is the case, one, the NFL is going to get great ratings, and two, the NFL is going to really hurt the NBA. But uh, I'm curious just how you sort of see this because it's a pretty interesting viewership story.
0: I mean, they're a Sherman tank right now. It's just like, get out of our way. And there's precedent here for the NFL too. You know, they used to not go up against the World Series on that Sunday night. Uh, You know, they would kind of not plan a game for for years during the the course of, from like 2006 to 2010 or something like that. Then they're finally like, you know what? We're going to outdraw them and we're not going to lose that much of an audience. And, you know, the hell with baseball. We're just going to put our game where it goes. And that's what they're seeing here. They're seeing an opportunity for viewership. They saw the incredible number that that browns Packers game got. I mean, that was a, a top 10 telecast on all of TV last year. How do you not consider doing that again? And if they have that sort of window and they can get those sorts of eyeballs where everyone's kind of gathered at home and, yeah, I mean, you know, NBA is going to have to, uh, you know, think about what to do next.
1: All right, John, since we, we got a couple
0: of topics to get
1: to still, uh, I'm going to move off of that. Uh, quick take and I want you or, or Austin's take. And I want to talk about the Daytona 500 because again, in the, in the last athletic column I did, I cited the once again, invaluable sports media watch that John has run for years with the data on the Daytona 500 since, um, you know, John has every viewership of that race since whatever the 1990s, I just went from 2017 to 2021. And I was kind of stunned John at seeing just how dramatic the viewership has dropped since 2017. On Sunday, Austin Cindric won the uh, Daytona 500 in his. Uh, he's a he's a rookie on the NASCAR Cup Series. It was a pretty exciting finish. He basically just eked out over Bubba Wallace. There was a crash on the last lap. There was a crash with eight laps to go that took out the then leader Ricky Stenhouse Jr. So it's a pretty fun race to watch. I have we don't know what the viewership numbers in yet. This is gonna, this will come in a couple hours after we tape this. But man, I look at those Daytona 500 viewership numbers, John Lewis, and I'm like, Jesus, like this is a precipitous drop. You talk about the Olympics dropping. This feels even far bigger. What a, uh, what do you make? What do you make at least of? I know NASCAR can rebound a little bit during the rest of the season, but man, this is their signature race. This is their Super Bowl, and these numbers are way down.
3: Well, I think for NASCAR, what they are of the mind of is that you had the Monday finish in 20. So that was the year when Trump showed up for the first laps and they got this big lift, those first initial laps. And then the race stopped immediately after and didn't pick up until the next day. Right. And so that resulted. That was also the race with the terrible crash with Ryan Newman. And it just wasn't a great night for NASCAR. And the numbers were down. And then last year was even worse where you had the race stayed on the Sunday, but it didn't finish till after midnight, long delay. And so NASCAR would say, you know, we've had back-to-back years where the rain wreaked havoc, right? What I would say is, yes, and that explains why the numbers were down, but it doesn't explain to me why last year's race was under 5 million. That was one of those numbers, like, let's keep in mind, Last year's Daytona Five Hundred had a smaller rating and fewer viewers than any of the NBA Finals games in the bubble in October of twenty. Right, like that's kind of where it was in terms of how low are you going? And you know, I think if you're NASCAR, you obviously can say, well, that's that's because of the, the of the delay and the late finish, and you don't have to necessarily worry about a repeat. And I wouldn't worry about a repeat necessarily either. But I do think it says a lot where your floor is, and I think that floor that we saw last year was a lot lower than I would have expected for a Daytona 500. So it's going to be very interesting to see where the numbers bounce back. Having the race actually finish, you know, on on the Sunday 6:45 as scheduled with sunshine and you know no rain, no potholes, and no jet dryers exploding or anything. I think that was a good thing for NASCAR but I don't necessarily know that you can rebound from 4.8 million and get back to even the 9 million that they got in 2019. And certainly I think the 11.9 million they got in 2017, I don't think they're going to sniff that for a long time.
1: Austin, um, I'm a big NASCAR fan. I I find it an interesting sport. Uh, Part of it is when I was at Sports Illustrated, I had this very cool assignment where I covered six races in eight weeks and I interviewed a thousand NASCAR fans. So I trape through all the RVs and it was just like fascinating for like, uh, you know, for a Yankee to be, to be floating through NASCAR country. It was really interesting. And like, ever since then I find myself occasionally watching it. I don't always understand it. I'll be the first to admit it. And they changed the point system. It sort of just like, is very confusing to me, but that said, like, I think it's interesting. Like, I just think the sport, it's kind of fun to watch and, and there's always seemingly drama, but Again, like, it, I, I have to, like, sort of acknowledge that, like, from its heights of, like, uh, you know, Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt Jr. and, uh, like, early Jimmy Johnson, like, the numbers have tanked. And I guess I look around, and I'm like, well, what would be the impetus to to change that? And I, I can't find it. Again, don't get me wrong. It's still a massive sport. You know, you're still drawing three, four million uh, viewers, uh, three, four million viewers for a race. That's, you know, again... Most of the leagues in the United States would kill for that. Hockey would kill for that, but I don't know. Do you? I again, it really sort of goes back to maybe a little bit of our Olympic question. Where do you see the NASCAR brand right now? And do you see places where you know you maybe do you see places where they can bring or get new viewers to come in under the tent?
0: You know, I think there is a little bit of that. You know, what is the national interest level? You know, in the NASCAR Cup Series, I, like alluding to what John said. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the the floor is per se, you know, given last year's numbers. Uh, obviously, the weather has done them no favors over the last few years. And I am glad that they were able to get that in on Sunday. You know, no, basically no headwinds there. And they got, I think they got a little bit of a bounce coming into it with the interest around the race in the Coliseum. I thought that was an incredibly, you know, smart move. Good media strategy by, you know, Brian Herbst and Steve Phelps over there, you know, getting, that, getting that in and getting interest drummed up early for the cup series so we'll see if that translates to the viewership you know yesterday i I don't think they had you know much competition there uh so i I think they'll see some sort of uptick uh, from these record lows but how much i don't know is it going to get back to that nine million range no i i don't think i don't think that's happening they need to create storylines like the nba needs to create storylines They need.
1: need, don't don't they feel like they need need a a villain don't they, they need, need a, a yeah like an Earnhardt senior? They need like they need I feel a fight like in they...
0: pit road. They need something you know. They need yeah. guys going at it, and you know all these guys have you know but they have sponsor responsibilities now. So yeah. is that Always. coming back? I don't I don't know. I don't think so. That's what everyone and everyone knocked Jimmy Johnson for that that he was so vanilla, you know, and you know just winning title after title, and you know you never <laughs> really heard him say anything out of the ordinary. Uh, yeah, you want to see them create, you know, a little con- a little conflict there between the drivers. You know, let's let's see them go at it a little bit. But uh, I-, I think they're going to get a good start this season, and I think they'll actually see a season long uptick because so goes Daytona, as goes Daytona, uh, so goes the season. I think, uh, you know, for the rest of the numbers, but uh, I think it's going to be a-, a good start for them.
1: All right. Do you guys, as we sort of wrap up here, do you, do either of you guys have any take on the PGA Tour? And what looks like the, the now falling apart of this perspective, uh, Saudi tar and what, what this means. I I admit the golf is like probably the biggest major sport I do not follow or, 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 um, you know, pay much attention to compared to the others, but maybe you two gentlemen are following this closer than me. Anybody have a take or, or thoughts on that?
0: I, you know, I'll I'll go. I mean, if, um, if you want to uh, kind of what Phil Mickelson said, in terms of like, yeah, they want a bigger cut of, you know, some of these media rights. They saw what the PGA tour got in their renewals. They saw that that they're getting a healthy uptick and numbers are up. Uh, But maybe, you know, if there's going to be, if you're going to create a potential competitor to try to, you know, create, uh, you know, get yourself a better stance, maybe don't line up with a Saudi golf tour because uh, that's probably not, you know, the best move to do it to increase your, you know, get yourself a better position.
1: John, did you want to weigh in on that? I mean, listen, Without knowing much, like Mickelson's comments were insane. Like, if you think that it's one thing to verbalize it, I, I'm not sure I've ever seen an athlete shake off state-sponsored murder like sort of as an afterthought. But, but you know, what do I know? What What are your thoughts, uh, John, if you have any on this?
3: Well, you know, if you think about how LeBron has been dogged by his comments about Daryl Morey, uh, which were far less explicit than what Mickelson yeah. said. It will be interesting to see if this affects Phil's reputation at all. I suspect it more question, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, we, we kind of understand that LeBron took that hit that he took because people were. I mean, you know, I mean, let's just be real looking to kind of uh, undermine his positions on social issues in this country. Phil has never really taken any social uh, stances on anything else. So that might help him be able to avoid the reputational damage that LeBron took. But, um, you know, when it comes down to it, there's a lot of people and a lot of athletes who think the way that Phil Mickelson does, which is, I want to get mine. And, you know, I don't particularly care about anything else that's going on in the world.
1: Well, he started like sort of on the right track here saying, you know, they killed Kashoggi. You have the quote here and have a horrible record on human rights. Mickelson said in the book, according to an excerpt from, uh, Alan Shipnuck, the author, they execute people over there for being gay, knowing all of this why would I even consider it so he didn't stop there because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to reshape how the pga tour operates I mean that's there's
0: no but though I don't know what right. he was thinking be, well it's just like that, once
1: like, you get that last sentence you're like it's it's you've crossed the Rubicon there like there's no coming back from that all right you, I know both of you guys have to go so is there anything you want to add before uh before we end this uh this, this quick round table session. You want to do who's your winners and losers of the week or anything like that? Or Austin carp is my winner of the week. John Lewis is my winner of the week.
0: Uh, I'll keep an eye on what March madness does. I want to see what kind of interest there is. Uh, you know, I don't see,
1: I don't know about you guys. Like there's no momentum for the tournament. None. Zero. Blue
0: bloods are down. Uh, you know, if your biggest storyline is, uh, Juwan Howard getting, uh, it, it, but that, but, but John Lewis,
1: wouldn't you also agree? That's the biggest story of the year so far. Is that is that is that Michigan, Wisconsin? You know, I know. Uh, you know, no offense to the Seth Davis of the world who love college basketball, but like, I don't think the the average casual sports fan. I, I, there is no momentum for the tournament now. <laughs> when the tournament comes, you can bet. You know, yes. you can play fan. You can, you do your brackets, and it's always going to be fun because of that. But uh, honestly, like. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, does the casual sports fan know more than like two or three names who play college basketball this year?
3: Well, that's the thing, though. Remember, college basketball is always like this every year. Every single year, especially like in 20, I knew the March bandits was going to have like a record low rating. Of course, we didn't have it, but you know, like the momentum wasn't there. There was nothing interesting going on. All all due respect to Dayton and the great year that they had, but there were there were no stories. Last year, same deal. It's like this every year. The tournament is not, it's I mean, it's just a totally different property than the rest of college basketball. It's not where you have the NBA playoffs and it's the NBA, but at a different level the NCAA tournament is a completely different property than the regular season game. So I think the tournament will do well because people like the tournament. It's something that has not yet kind of taken on all of that baggage that all the other events have. Uh, and I think that first Thursday to get back to that regular first Thursday for the first time in three years, rather than last year, and it was a Friday and that was kind of weird, you know, that I, I think you're going to see until, you know, TBS carries the national championship exclusively, of course, until that point, uh, you're going to see, I think, ratings that are either comparable to past years or I would imagine up. You got to remember last year, the weird schedule. I think getting back to the normal schedule will actually improve the ratings. certainly once you get to the Elite Eight, which last year did so poorly. So, you
0: know. I'll also add that with, I mean, I think you're going to see the uptick around out of home, now that people are returning more to bars, I think the increase in sports betting around the country will help those sorts of numbers, streaming and out of home. I mean, you saw what streaming meant to like the Super Bowl this year. It's gone from low single digits pretty, pretty fast to what it was around 10% of the audience this year. So I, I think, you know, we don't have to worry about the boss button anymore. People are just gonna watch <laughs> where they where they are. Boss and <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I'm, I'm hearkening way back, but uh, I think you know bars are are getting more and more packed. Restaurants are going to be more and more packed. People are are going to be watching those early rounds in particular, like John talked about those first Thursday, first Thursday Friday. So, yeah, I, I think there'll be an uptick early. I, I want to see what teams make the final four. I mean, Baylor Gonzaga. I mean, it, you know, it, it didn't really you know do it for me, uh, but we'll see.
1: Yeah. All right. So Austin, I'm a t- once again, I'm a terrible host. I told you I'd get you out of here three minutes ago. So my uh, my apologies. You get extra time,
0: Richard. Yeah. You get extra time. Well,
1: once. But, but as my as the audience already knows, I'm a shitty host. So this is really not this is not breaking news. All right. Austin Carp is the managing editor slash digital of Sports Business Daily. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, he does phenomenal work for that excellent publication. John Lewis, founder and editor of Sports Media Watch, and is uh, one of the uh, one of the two on the Sports Media Watch podcast with TJ Reeves. Guys, I really enjoyed this. I'm going to do this again. This is a good roundtable. I feel like uh, the, the you, you two are a good. You two, YouTube two are in sync. Oh. I like I like the chemistry that you two guys uh, have. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do this again. John and Austin, I appreciate your time and uh, continued success. And thanks so much for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast.
0: Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. Always great chatting with the both of you. All
1: right, back in the studio. My thanks to Mike Tarico as well as Austin Carp and John Lewis for their time and insight. If you like these kind of conversations, please head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page. Give us a five-star review, as well as a nice note. That is how the podcast will continue. Um, previous guest, last uh, podcast was, uh, was uh, Michelle Tafoya on her next role following Sunday Night Football. And USA Today's Nancy Armour on covering the Olympics in China. We talked to Nancy when she was in China. Prior to that, the challenges of covering a Super Bowl with Jim Trotter and Jane McManus. We also got into the uh, Brian Flores uh, um, lawsuit in that podcast. Before that, ESPN president of programming and original content, Burke Magnus, on where NBC is heading. Prior to that, Troy Aikman, Mike Golick, Jake Lazer did a hockey roundtable, and you can just basically go through the... Uh, archives list hopefully it'll be something that you will enjoy. Wanna thank Patrick Antonetti as always for producing this podcast. Thank you to everybody Cadence13 for their support. Most of all thanks to you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.